Welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, the official podcast of Craft Brewed Music, the home of small batch streaming. Here we explore better music for serious listeners and those who create it. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. Hey Aaron, how's it going? I'm doing great, Brian. I am still uh, smiling and uh, illuminated from our discussion with Jonathan Scales, a uh, steel pan pioneer and very talented composer uh, with whom we uh, shared a very interesting conversation. Uh, among many topics, uh, we uh, discussed um, his admiration for uh, banjo virtuoso Bela Fleck, a person who also looms large as a figure in our musical education and uh, we've been uh, big fans of Bela Fleck ourselves he recounted a a story that uh, was the inspiration for a tune of his called Lurkin about uh, particular practices of, of his to lay in wait for uh, Bela and members of the uh, Flectones whenever they would come to to play at his uh, at his <laughs> college and uh, how eventually his uh his persistence led to a relationship and the uh, the opportunity to uh, to play with some of his favorite musicians. But I, as I heard that story, I recalled and and smirked uh, about a uh, somewhat similar but not quite as fruitful experience of mine uh, when I was probably fifteen years old. Uh, this would be nineteen ninety one, and my my mother, bless her heart, took me and a couple of my friends to see Bela Fleck and the Flecktones in Woodstock, New York, the Bearsville Theater. And it was one of the worst snowstorms of the year. And uh, it was probably ill-advised that we that we even went there. And I think we had to follow a snowplow in order to get uh, to our destination. And we finally made it there. Somehow they had not con- canceled the concert. And before it was about to start, I, I went downstairs and they had like, you know, the... Um, there was the, the restrooms and there was a, a, a line of uh, payphones. It's back when payphones were a thing. And at the last payphone, uh, I saw Bela Fleck on, on the telephone. And I couldn't help it. I, I found a dark corner and I waited. You lurked. And I, I lurked. <laughs> I lurked like a, like a very awkward, creepy teenager until his very lengthy phone conversation was over. And he realized at some point that there was someone there watching him and looked over his shoulder several times. Uh, And uh, I must have seemed (laughs) harmless enough because uh, he was kind enough to come over and say hi and and thank us for making the effort to come out and see him. And as always, it was was a great show. But uh, I never got him to play my album after that. So... uh, (laughs) Not as successful as, as Jonathan Scales' experience with Lurkin. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> um, yeah, it was a it was a fascinating interview. went went in some directions that I didn't foresee, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was uh, it was a great one. Let's start off and play one of our favorite songs from the Jonathan Scales Orchestra, "Dream Life State."
thanks a lot for making time to do this. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, how you, how you got to, to be where you are and, and do what you're doing. We like to try to keep it a little bit, um, you know, kind of like craft root music outside the the mainstream questions and, and not so much just, you know, where do you grow up and why do you like music? But uh, in your case, we are really interested in how you got to the steel pans. Okay. So how I got to the steel pans, it was kind of an interesting process, but I started off originally as a saxophone player when I was in sixth grade. And, um, when I got to high school, like my last two years of high school, I got really interested in percussion and I started doing drumline stuff also on top of that, like drumline and orchestral percussion stuff. And then it wasn't until I got to college that I was introduced to the steel pan. And it was a good friend of mine um, basically told me that there's this, this, this steel band, you know, like a steel pan orchestra at the school. And she was like, hey, you should try out for it. It's really cool. We get to skip class and, you know, we get to go on these trips and play all these concerts all over the place and stuff like that and I wasn't really interested because I had come to school to study composition and I wasn't really interested in picking up a new instrument you know on the first week of school yeah Um, but um she showed me where the instruments were and I saw people play and I got to play a little bit and I was hooked from there I'm sort of glad and sort of disappointed that you didn't say that it was the skipping school that drew you in because that would have been, <laughs> you know, it would have been a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah, that was, just, um, that was just an added bonus to like Because <laughs> the steel band that we were in at, at Appalachian State, um, we actually had a pretty crazy tour schedule for a college ensemble. We would perform at middle schools and elementary schools and high schools and nursing homes and all kinds of stuff. And we, we would go on a tour that would be like two or three days, but then every day we would play like three schools or something, you know? So wow, right. it was pretty cool. And was the yeah. repertoire of that ensemble uh, more traditional uh, steel drum music? It was a mix of traditional stuff and covers. You know, we, we would do like some Disney covers. We would do some like rock covers. Uh, like like t- like take on me and stuff like that. Oh aha yeah it's a yeah or a walk like an Egyptian and like random tunes like that. But we also played like songs from like Disney tunes like you know we played Under the Sea from Little Mermaid and we played songs from The Lion King. Um, and then we also played like some some classical pieces and we played calypso. So we we played a lot of stuff in that band. Okay, and so from. From there, your exploration into jazz and and um, and you know using the term loosely and, and funk and world and all the things that you bring in uh, was that kind of on your on your own. You borrowed a drum from the ensemble and, and kind of started to explore. Well, mostly it was just um, the influence from my friends at the time. So, um, like I guess coming into school, I was really into classical music and I was really into hip hop and rock music. Um, but then my friends were into things like, uh, you know, that's how I learned about Bela Fleck. That's how I learned about Chick Corea. That's how I learned about Miles Davis. That's how I learned about, you know, uh, Danny Elfman and, uh, just that's how I learned about Andy Norell and Pat Metheny and all those guys was just from the people I was hanging out with. 
they just had really cool taste in music. Mm -hmm. So from there, I just kind of uh, tried to apply all that stuff. And I was already there to be a composer. I was already writing music. I kind of already had my own, you know, I kind of had my own way that I like to write music and stuff like that already from that, from that time. So, okay. I just, and then along, alongside that, at some point the, the pans became your primary voice for expressing those things. Right. I mean, for me, it, it was basically instantaneous. Um, even though I was a, supposed to be a saxophone player, um, I just was drawn to the pans. So that was tricky in my school because for every um, every student had to have like a, a major instrument, no matter what right. your major is in the music building. So right. um, because I auditioned on saxophone, that was my had to be my major instrument. And also pan didn't count as an, it didn't count as an instrument at that school. Yeah, right. So I had to take lessons every week on saxophone. I had to do a recital on saxophone. So all, all of my extra steel pan stuff during college was done just after hours outside of school for no credit. At what point did you start forming your own, your own, uh, your own band? So it wasn't until maybe like my, my sophomore year is when I saw Bela Fleck and Edgar Meyer play a duo concert at my, at my college. And from there, that's when I, um, started writing my own music that was geared towards like a small ensemble type of thing, you know, cause before that, all of my stuff was geared towards just like, you know, like string quartets and wood, woodwind ensembles and wind ensembles and orchestras and just, you know, solo piano pieces and just like building my repertoire that I had to do as a composer in school, you know? Um, so it wasn't until like maybe around my sophomore year, I started writing more to for like small ensembles and then towards maybe like at the end of college is when I started to like put a band together. The things about the uh, the the steel pan that's intriguing to me it's it's a very unique timbre, and there's aspects of the the sound quality that remind me of the banjo. And that there's a very percussive attack. There's kind of this sculpted body, and then a very rapid decay. Yeah, uh, which I find very kind of in common with the the banjo as a, as an instrument and how it's uh, how it's how it's used musically. Yeah, they have the similar. Um attack decay sustain release situation happening 
very similar did, sounds. Did, so did, was that uh, part of your connection with Bela Flex music that you already kind of had the, uh, the steel pan um, bug going and then you're like, wow, this is a, a way to apply this that would be, would be interesting. Not really. I never really, when I heard Bela play, I never really thought about it like that. That wasn't really what drew me to him. Um, I think what drew me to him is he was kind of already, or he was kind of pushing the boundaries of what people expected of banjo, you know? And with the music that I was writing, I was already pushing the boundaries of what people expected of Steel Pan. And I didn't know that I was doing that, but people would start to tell me, man, this thing that you wrote, this is really a strange thing. For the I never heard a Pan player play something like mm-hmm. this. So people were telling me that from the moment, from the very first time I started like, you know, using the pan and composition, people were telling me that. So when I heard Bela and I heard what he was doing, it was just like, all right, maybe I'm not a weirdo, you know, maybe I'm not an alien because here's this guy who's really famous and he, you know, does stuff on his instrument that people aren't expecting. Did you ever immerse yourself in traditional steel pan or did you kind of always come at it from more of an outside perspective? Um, so I never immersed myself in it, but I definitely, you know, learned, studied and um, understand that world. You know what I mean? So I'm not yeah. a stranger to it, but I didn't like, I didn't like go through a period where I said, okay, I'm, I'm only going to play Calypso and I'm going to learn all the licks from all the great players and all, yeah. you know, I'm going to learn the lingo of, so, you know, I'm, I kind of, I kind of contribute that to like kind of having growing up in a military family and moving around and always having to adapt. So that's kind of how I am as a person. Anyway, I'm always taking a little bit of this, taking a little bit of that. Are there kind of on the, uh, on the same, in the same vein, um, is there, cause when Bela Fleck was branching out and becoming more experimental with using the banjo in different genres, there was kind of an external pressure to make sure that there was, uh, you know, he was still rooted to what is idiomatic for the banjo and the bluegrass community is very protective of its traditions. Right. Uh, do you feel the same kind of thing from the, the, uh, the steel, the steel drum community in Calypso that you, you need to give a, an appropriate nod to the tradition? Um, a little bit. Most, so there are people who don't like what I do. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are very traditional when it comes to uh, steel pan and, you know, because it's like it's very culturally rich history coming from Trinidad and Tobago. And, you know, a lot of people went through a lot of stuff to create this instrument and make it what it is and to get it this far. And so a lot of people are very protective of that. Um, but, you know, I'm coming at it from my own perspective. So uh, I just try to stay genuine to myself. But, you know, I definitely there's definitely people who especially in the earlier days when I was just kind of like coming up and people were just starting to hear about me. Um, there were a lot of traditionalists that would kind of like, you know, go on the internet and say bad things about me. But, you know, for every, for every one traditionalist that was on the internet talking bad about me, there'd be like 15 people that were supportive, you know, saying, Hey, you know, he's doing something different and, you know, he's pushing the boundaries and he's doing something that's, you know, off the beaten path. And, you know, people were very supportive. And probably bringing a new audience to the traditional players as well. Yeah, for sure. It's fascinating that the various things that came together in your story. One of the things that that Aaron and I both noticed as we kind of dove deep into your recordings was the 
prominent role that composition plays. And I've, you know, I've heard your stuff for a long time, as you know, I added it to the craft brew music collection a couple of years ago and, yeah. um, you know, kind of the, the tunes that I had gravitated toward initially were the kind of funkier tunes and, um, and, you know, digging really deep into this, it's amazing that the, to realize that a lot of these tunes are compositions where the bulk of the material is composed rather than improvised. Uh, right. and so we were curious to hear you talk a little bit about, about how you approach that, you know, that composition versus improvisation question. Gotcha. You know, it was funny you mentioned that because, um, I just released this this video about my ideas of composition versus improvisation. And, um, you know, we don't have to get deep into all that right now, but, um, you know, a lot, of a lot of people ask me what percentage of my music is written, what percentage of it is improvised, and that's going to vary from tune to tune. Sure. So I do identify more as a composer than I do a steel pan player or a steel panist. Mm -hmm. So there are... Um, a lot of my stuff is very composed. Um, so, but also, I also approach composition as if it were improvisation. And what I mean by that is like, uh, I don't tend to just, I, I, I tend to have the idea of what I want to do, like whatever the emotion is that I want to convey, whatever the idea is for the tune. And then just like we're in, me and you, all of us are improvising right now. We have the idea of what we want to talk about. And then we use our knowledge that we've gained from our lives and speaking the English language and we express the thought. Um, I compose in that way too. So my composition is also a form of improvisation because when I'm writing it, it's pretty, it's pretty much done right there on the spot instantaneously. I don't tend to like toil over, you know, I don't tend to toil over pieces of music, even when it's composed. So a lot of it, even though it's like the set part that's going to be played over and over, a lot of times it was written in an improvisatory um, setting. So the lines are really blurred. Written at the instrument? Depends. So, you know, some stuff is of mine is written at the pan. Some stuff is written on instruments that I don't even play. That's, that's another thing that's like one of my secrets is like, you know, there's certain crazy lines of mine that I wrote on like an out-of-tune guitar, for example. Like a guitar where all the strings are all in different places and I pick it up, I mess around, come up with something that's like, hey, I like the sound of that. I would have never come up with that. Then I transport that to my instrument and then now I'm playing something that I would have never thought of playing. Hmm. You know, so there's, there's stuff like that that I do. Um, so yeah, so even my compositions have a lot of improvisatory aspects.
Was it necessary for you in, 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 in uh, transforming some of those parts back onto the, to the steel pan to, um, to invent new techniques or do things that were not idiomatic for the instrument at all in order to pull that off? No, no, nothing like that. Like, um, yeah, nothing like that. Like I'm, so I, honestly, between us, I feel like I'm a decent steel pan player there's players that can play circles around me any day of the week you know but i feel like the thing that has kind of helped me has just been my approach and my voice as a composer so that being said you know when i come up with like these different ideas to play on the pan it's nothing that's like impossible you know what i mean it's nothing where i have to like do any extended technique or anything like that to achieve Mm -hmm. it's just like the way I'm coming about it is different, but the technique is the same. One of the, uh, the anthems that I've had in this last week, which has been a, uh, uh, a difficult one out here, uh, is, uh, your piece, uh, we came through the storm. Yeah. Um, which I think is a great example of this, uh, combination of something that's composed and has uh, more complex instrumentation and different layers that come in as this ostinato is kind of reiterated over this uh, seven minutes of the piece. But at times it's just, you know, it's the, it's the power trio jamming in the middle as well. And it's right. this great kind of ebb and flow of improvisation and, and the piece coming back in. Yeah. I, I liked, I liked hearing you talk about that just now. It's, it's sometimes it's cool to just hear people, people's, viewpoints of that so well I'm, I'm curious a little bit uh for that song um because there's there's this cinematic quality to the right. uh to, to the piece uh and uh, a kind of a dramatic arc to it and what what was the uh obviously it was before the current storm we're in right um, <laughs> if there was a particular uh, uh creative impulse for that uh that particular piece so i will say that um i always wanted to write music for movies and so there's a lot of times where I kind of think cinematically. Um, so in this piece, I just wanted to kind of convey a storm. That's, I mean, literally that's, I wanted to like paint a picture of the storm and make people feel like, you know, they were a part of this thing.
one part in particular that I can talk about in depth would be um, there's this middle section where everybody drops out and it's just the pan and it, it kind of slows down and then it, it builds back up little by little, it adds players and it, it builds back up, gets faster and faster. Um, and the time signatures change like crazy, right? Mm-hmm. It, the time signatures change as it speeds up, as it's going through all these core progression and as everyone starts playing more intensely. And um, when I was writing that part, you know, I decided that, all right, I want to like make it feel like there's a storm that's like coming. So, so I wrote the chords, I wrote these eight chords that I felt like represented, you know, this vibe that I wanted to get across about the storm. But then when it came to the time signature changes or the time changes, um, I said to myself, you know, if this were really a storm, I wouldn't really have, um, any say over which way the wind blows and, and things like that. So I actually used a random number generator to create those times, those time changes. Huh. Yeah. So I, I just, and then also like, um, I had the chords already, I had eight chords and I assigned one times, uh, like one time signature to each chord change. And, you know, I went to Google, I typed in random number generator, I set my parameter to eight or something like that. And then I just, you know, kept hitting enter and I took the first note that, or the first number that it gave me. And it turned out to be, it was a, a five, four, seven, six, seven, four, seven, two. Those were the eight numbers that shot out. I combined that with the chords. And then, so if, if you listen to the, um, if you listen to, we came to the storm, you'll hear those numbers. One, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, one, back to the top. And so like, I kind of combined the elements of like, okay, my feelings or whatever, my emotions of like writing these chords or whatever, I combined that with the element that I had no control over. That's great. like that that I do that you know that's kind of how I develop my my voice you know I, I studied I studied composition 
under a guy named Dr. Scott Meister, who was very modern, you know? So like I, I came from a very modern school of thinking, very outside the box. Um, I came from a school where it was very encouraged to push, you know, your compositions as, you know, outside the box. That's what, that's what it was all about. And so I was kind of very encouraged to try new ways and try new approaches and things like that. So that became a big part of my sound. Mm, that's fascinating. It's, it's very, it's very effective, particularly as it culminates in that, that those, the brass comes in at the end. Yeah. Uh, God, I love that moment. Thank you so much. take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, which is, well, us. 
Craft Brood Music is a curated streaming service that streams better music for serious listeners. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations. And we split our income with the artists, which allows you to support this important music. It's $5 a month or $50 a year, less than a latte. We're the Small Batch Streaming App, available at the App Store and at Google Play. Or to hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbroodmusic.com. So in, in uh, you know, on the Mixtape Symphony album, a piece, as most of that is a multi-movement piece. Do you, did you conceive that as a multi-movement piece in, in that order? Or was that kind of an afterthought? It was, um, it was a mix of all, it was a mix of all those things. So I knew I wanted to make this multi-movement work, mostly inspired by uh, Future Man, which you guys probably know him very well. Of course. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about that as a follow-up. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Future man was always telling me that I needed to write long form. He was, he always would tell me, man, all the great composers, you know, back in the day, they used to write long forms. People were writing these novels on their instruments. And now people are just writing short stories, but people used to write novels with their instruments, you know, with their music. And now we're just back to writing these little, you know, three minute long short stories and stuff. So I decided to kind of like take those concepts, both those concepts. And so with Mixed Same Symphony, each of those pieces can stand alone as its own piece. Mm -hmm. Or the whole thing can be played from top to bottom with the seamless, um, you know, seamless transitions between movements and things like that. Is that also the case with uh, your most recent recording, uh, Mind State Music? that these were standalone pieces and a uh, conglomeration or, or was it uh, preconceived as a, uh, as a, as a, as a sequence of, uh, of landscapes? Yeah. So mind state music is definitely, um, you know, conceived as a sequence, as you say. Um, and any of those pieces, any of those movements could stand alone. Um, because I am a, a fan of just like having just like, you know, almost like songs, you know, Mm-hmm. So, um, and all those movements have their own names and there's people that like certain ones better than others. And, you know, there's people that gravitate towards one movement movement. Um, so like I did conceive that to be, uh, something that should be played all at one time, but also it's designed to where like in the modern world we live in, if you're on Spotify or something like that, and you just want to listen to the man, which is the second movement, mm-hmm. then you can just listen to the man and it works fine. Do you always perform them as a, uh, you know, as full works? Um, so Mind State Music was written as a concerto for my band with steel drum band, a steel drum orchestra as the accompaniment. So we have, we performed it one time at the premiere, which was in Houston, Texas, like with the full steel band that was at a, a college there, uh, San Jacinto College. And um, so that was the one time we actually got to perform the whole thing because it's kind of a massive work. <laughs> and we were supposed to perform it several times in April, including University of North Texas and um, different schools like that, also Appalachian State. Um, but because of the coronavirus, it all got shut down. So there's a lots of students that spent the whole semester learning all that music. And then we didn't get to play it. Oh, 
are there are there versions of those individual movements that you can play as a as a trio with the orchestra? Yes, actually. Um, so we haven't done it a lot, but we've done um, the movement called the mud, and the movement called the mouse. So we've done those just as a trio. Um, but as a trio, it's completely different. It's not, not completely different, but like, for example, on the mud, there's like so many layers. Every instrument is its own layer. So there's like 10 layers that mm. build up together. But with the three of us, we just play it in a way, adding our own style, you know, like our improvisatory style and just like, you know, building textures and things like that to where we can pull it off as its own thing. The mud is a great track. Um, Thank you. The, uh, the, way, the way the layers come together um, and the uh, the different voices complement one another. It almost, it almost becomes this gigantic pipe organ. Man, that's a cool way to think about it. album was kind of a um it's a very personal album for me um if you look at the album cover you can probably if you know me at all and you see the album cover you can probably tell that a lot of crazy things were happening in my life <laughs> around that time brian and i were actually talking about the about the about the the pillar album cover and how much how fun and whimsical that was and how the next one was kind of disturbing <laughs> yeah you know and actually in a lot of ways the pillar album cover too is Sure, is I guess it'd be seen as fun and whimsical too, but that also was kind of like a deep album for me too. Mm-hmm. Both both of those albums were kind of like heavy in terms of like, um, yeah, both of those albums were really kind of a heavy thing for me. But Pillar was more packaged in a way that was presentable just to the general masses. Like even you know, Dream Life Dream Life State that you have referenced, um, like that tune actually comes from a heavy place also, but it sounds fun. Right. Interesting. And also there's no words, so you, you never know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I mean, that song, uh, Dream, Dream Life State is is like literally one day I was driving down the road and I'd gone, like a lot of crazy stuff had happened in my life 
in terms of like, you know, marriages and all kinds of stuff, you know, just crazy life adult stuff, you know, mm-hmm. where my life was kind of turned upside down. But that particular day, for some reason, I was unusually happy. Like considering everything that was happening in life, I was unusually happy this day. And I started just singing into my phone, like in, in the voice memo. And um, that became dream life state. So like the thing about it is like, it sounds happy and it sounds like cheerful, but it really is like this gl- is like this tiny window of happiness. You know what I mean? That sound, it's really cool and sounds really happy, but like, that's why there's a lot of like harmonic twists and turns and melodic twists and turns that are like, not characteristic of a tune that's actually happy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the uh, the strong features of of your composition is that it's it's at, at its face very accessible and seems whimsical and, and fun. You're like, oh wow, I can see you to get into. Then you're right. as you listen deep, you're like, there's there's a lot going on here. This is complicated, and I and I don't I don't get as much of this as I think I do. Yeah, like mindset music is like the ultimate <laughs> of that because. Um, for, for one, it was never meant to be released as an album. Like, it, it honestly was a commission from that school I told you about in Texas, uh, San Jacinto uh, hmm. College. So uh, the professor, Mike Misma, he reached out to me to write this piece. So that's all it was supposed to be, was, you know, the performance of this piece at this college. And the students, le- you know, they spent the entire semester learning it, and the forester went there and played it. That was supposed to be it. But then because I spent so much time writing this music, I said, you know, I should release this as an album, even though it's not really, a, you know, it's only six tracks and it's not like the most um, accessible music. But I feel like I owe it to my fans and things like that who want to dive deeper. So that's why I released Mind State Music. So um, I never I never recommend Mind State Music as the first thing to listen to of mine you know it's definitely like a more of a deep dive what, what do you recommend as, as your as your gateway album i recommend pillar mm-hmm. yeah so pillar pillar is my sixth album but you know i feel like it is a culmination of my career up to up to that point um and i put a lot into i put a lot into pillar um just having that idea that i wanted an album that i felt like would be a stamp for me, you know, just as an artist, you know, like after I'm long gone, like I just feel like Pillar kind of encapsulates my whole thing. <laughs> you know, I, I think that it really, and I did, I did that on purpose. Like I, that, I feel like Pillar was me like saying, okay, I've honed my craft for like 12 years. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let me, let me, make an album that like represents that, you know? And so that's why for me, that's why it's cool that Bela's on it. And, you know, my heroes are on there, you know? Yeah. This, this, like, this, there's some great, uh, great guests on that album. Yeah. So, so that's, that's pillar. Um, and then like, yeah, mindset music is more like a deep dive and there's tunes in there that like people like, like the mud that have like deep psychological meetings, but it's kind of like art, you know, it's kind of like a painting. So there's paintings that, that like, we'll never know what the artist was really thinking, but they might look a certain way and we might hang them up on our walls or we might get the tattoo or we might wear the t-shirt with the print on it or something like that, you know, but we might not know the full extent of what the artist is thinking. And I feel like mind state music is 
one of those for me where um, there's just a lot, there's a lot of heaviness in there. Like a good example is the second movement, which is called The Man. Um, all the students that learn that, that's their favorite movement overall. Like if there was like a poll of from all the colleges, even all the colleges that, you know, we didn't get to play it in April, like University of North Texas, um, University of Southern Mississippi, Northern Illinois, Appalachian State, all these places that we were supposed to play. Um, I feel like people like the second movement because it sounds upbeat and fun. But like um, my headspace when writing that and like what it really means mm -hmm. is like a deeper level. But that's the cool thing about art is like it's up to the interpretation and how people perceive it. describes you waiting around trying to meet Bela and the other Flectones, your heroes, as you put it. And of course, Howard Levy of the Flectones plays on that track. Uh, and, and the other guys, several of them play on on Pillar. Um, did you ultimately, uh, were you ultimately successful in meeting Bela through that stalking methodology? <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> it worked out very well. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I mean, the way it kind of worked was, um, I mean, the very first time was when I was in college, actually, and the Flectones were playing at my college, um, Appalachian State in North Carolina. And I ran into Victor outside of the theater. And, you know, I was probably like a sophomore. Um, I was probably like a sophomore in college. And I ran up to Victor Root and I said, hey, man, my name's Jonathan. I play the steel pan. Um, can I jam with you guys at Soundcheck? And Victor was like, uh, sure, I guess, you know, just, I guess go get your stuff and just, you know, kind of wait in the wings and, you know, we'll see what happens. And I'll talk to Bela. Cause you know, cause in that band, you know, Victor, like he's like, you know, Bela's, he's the big, he's the boss, you know what I mean? So like Victor can't just bring me in just randomly, you know, he had to talk to Bela and stuff, but Victor was like, sure. Uh, I don't know. So anyway, I, I went and I got my pans and, I brought him back to the theater and I just waited in the wings while the Flectones rehearsed. And then eventually Bela came over with his banjo on and his picks on his fingers. And he shook my hand and said, uh, so Victor says you want to play a couple songs with us. And so I played with the Flectones when I was a sophomore in college in front of an empty, in, in an empty auditorium. 
um, during their sound check. I just jammed with them on two songs and, you know, that was like the early days of me, of me playing pan. So I probably wasn't that great, but they were very supportive and they were just like, yeah, good job, man. Keep it up. And they were just very nice. Yeah. Um, and then I, I just kept showing up like over and over and over. I wouldn't play with them, but like I would, just, I would show up like at sound check or before sound check. And, and that's how the lurking thing came about where I would, you know, I would drive to Nashville or Knoxville or, you know, somewhere in Virginia to, to see the Flectones. And then, you know, Bela would see me for like the 10th time. <laughs> and then he would just, he would see me like by the tour bus and he would point to me and say lurking and then just get on the bus. And then that was it. <laughs> So like he wouldn't even say no. I'm just joking. Good to see you, man. He would he would say lurking, and then that was it. But by that point, like you know, I'd I'd see Victor and we talk a while. I see Future Man and we talk a long time. And you know, I got to know all the guys that way. But Bela was always the most standoffish one. Um, but I feel like when I um I did a cover of like I can't even really call it a cover. It's like I transcribed some crazy Bela Fleck stuff from one of his concertos. Mm. And um, I released a video of that. And when I did that, that's kind of when things started to turn around (laughs) with me and Bela. I guess (laughs) when he saw that there's this guy playing like the crazy, not just like, you know, some of his songs like Sinister Minister, things like that, but like some of the craziest, most insane stuff that he's ever played. And then I'm playing it on the pan. I think that it kind of like piqued his interest a little more maybe. And then, you know, at that point I still kept, showing up and stuff. But then at that point, you know, I was hanging yeah. and then Bela would introduce me to people, you know, Bela introduced me to Howard Levy and was like, Hey, this guy right here, you know, he, um, he transcribed my concerto in steel pants. So then I became that guy, okay. you know? And then finally, when it came around to me asking Bela to play on pillar, it worked out. And when it came to me asking Bela to play on NPR, you know, on tiny desk, it worked out. That's great. The uh, great. tell tell us a bit more about the uh, the tune uh, focus poem and uh, and how that was conceived. Um, so you know, like I said, the whole album pillar kind of I was in a certain place at that time, um, and focus poem really is just about it's it's not about any particular story like Lurkin is um, or you know, but focus poem is just more about this like intense like this kind of like this work ethic kind of thing that I'm kind of known for where it's just like, I'm intensely focusing on getting things done and, and, and pushing forward, you know? So that's where that kind of momentum comes in. And I just try to encapsulate that into music, you know, because during that time there was so much happening that like the music was really keeping me focused and the the music was really keeping me um, on track. What was it? What was it written with? Uh, with Bela Fleck in mind? Actually, it was not. Um, so, there's a tune of mine called "This Is the Last Hurrah," yep. that's on uh, Pillar, and Jeff yeah. Coffin is on "This Is the Last Hurrah." But right. I wrote, I wrote "This Is the Last Hurrah" with Bela in mind originally, and it's actually called "This Is the Last Hurrah" because you know I'd already written "Lurkin," I learned concerto, I, like I did all this stuff to like try to, you know, win the heart of Bela Fleck, you know. <laughs> And it never worked at that point. So, <laughs> so when, when I wrote This is the Last Hurrah, it was designed to like say, all right, I'm going to write this piece with the, with the intention of getting Bela Fleck to play on it. 
on my next record. You've studied uh, orchestration um, f- formally, I'm, I'm sure, in your uh, time at school. Um, but this is, you know, a new a new flavor for for um, you know for for modern composition and uh, and chamber music to have a, a steel pan. And to, to me, it's really interesting. I mean, that's undiscovered territory. How it's going to sound when you combine it with a soprano saxophone or a muted trumpet or a banjo that has similar sonic qualities, as I mentioned before, and that that seems to be a uh, you know a process of invention that you have to figure out how this fits in in with those more traditional voices. I mean, I guess so, but I guess my thing is like I never see it like that, like because ultimately, the steel pan is an instrument. You know, it's just in the same and like and with an instrument you speak a language, or a dialect or something. So in the same way that like. A person who speaks English from China can talk to a person who speaks English from Germany. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. very similar to that idea where like, you know, like I've, there's only 12 notes in, you know, this Western system of music that we play. You know what I mean? So like if I'm using those 12 notes and you're using those 12 notes, we can make something work if we're listening to each other in the same way we're like, you know, English speakers from around the world can speak English together based off of what they know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, I, I never, I've never gone into it thinking, how's the, how's the steel pan going to fit in this? Because the only reason why we think it can is just because of what we know. We, we just automatically assume like, Oh, I've never heard it in that context or I never, I've never, um, you know, I've only seen this instrument do this or I've only seen this instrument do that. But like, I'm, I'm not thinking like that at all. So I just say, oh, this will be cool. And then I have to do it.
Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the streaming service, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Secondly, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.